Hey everybody, it's Kindle from Recording Lounge, and today we're here to talk a little bit about drum recording. And of course, I realize that there are an infinite number of ways to record drums. There are an infinite number of ways to mic up a drum kit. There are an infinite number of drum setups that you can choose from, and cymbals, and snare drums, and kick drums. And there are, of course, tons of drum heads out there. There are lots of mics out there for recording drums, and there's really no wrong or right answer. And somehow I'm going to try to tackle all these things. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about recording a large rock kit with a lot of microphones, close mics and far, far mics or room mics, and we're going to talk about some of the concerns that we have with these things. But first, let's talk about what I would call the four T's, okay? This is the four T's of basically recording anything. You have to make sure that everything you record has good tuning, timing, tone, and taste. You can pretty much narrow everything down to that. Okay, so a guitarist needs good tuning, he needs to stay in tune, he needs to have good timing, he needs to have good tone, and what he's actually playing needs to have good taste. Okay, so it needs to be appropriate. With a drummer, you have those four things, but you also have four other things. Okay, you have consistency, class, cohesion, and compelling parts. So you have the four T's, and then for drummers, you also have four C's. I remember it this way just out of necessity, and when I do classes at the local tech schools and teach, you know, it's easy for people to remember these things. So a drummer needs to be consistent in the playing, okay? He needs to hit the snare drum consistently. It doesn't, you know, you can't have a hit that's super loud and then the next one's super quiet and then the next one's somewhere in between and the next one's really quiet again and the next one's really loud. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's not going to sound like a groove. It's going to sound like a drummer can't play. A drummer needs to have class, okay? He needs to not just flail all around and play these crazy fills just to impress people, okay? There's no reason for a drummer to be arrogant in the studio. There is a time and a place to play a crazy fill. That's not all the time, okay? Um, it goes very hand-in-hand -hand with taste, but the point is sometimes a drummer can play a fill that's really tasty, that, you know, that, that sounds awesome, but it doesn't really fit with the song. So he needs class, you know, he needs to have class. He needs cohesion. The parts need to make sense together. You know, what he plays in the verse and what he plays in the chorus need to make sense together. It, it, you can't just have this one crazy, you know, groove in the verse and then go to a really completely different groove that doesn't even sound like the same song. Uh, to a lot of people, the drums can really make or break a recording in a lot of genres. That just, I mean, it's such a large part of it. It has to carry the groove. I mean, it defines where people clap. It defines how people dance, generally. I mean, it's a big part of the music. And also, the parts need to be compelling, okay? So they need to be interesting, right? I mean, sure, there are certain songs where, you know, the typical kick on one and three and the snare on two and four is what works. But at the same time, they're the parts need to be interesting in their own way. So four T's, four C's, okay? Now, in addition, you have to consider a lot of things with the drum kit itself. And I would love to get into these in depth, but I mean, I could make 10 shows about recording drums. Who knows? Eventually, I might end up doing that. But today, I'm just going to give a general overview of it, okay? So when you first get the idea that you need to record drums, okay? I need to record drums for this song. What you need to do is think about the sound you're going for. Is it a rock song? You know, is it supposed to sound like classic rock or modern rock? Is it a metal song? Is it, you know, and there's all kinds of different drum sounds. I mean, thousands of drum sounds. And 
what's, what is right for your song? Okay, what is a good sound for the song? And really, you need to consider that in almost anything you record. Because as, as much as you don't want to believe this, people will judge the music by how cohesive it sounds. They do it subconsciously. Very rarely, almost never, will a listener hear something and say, oh, you know, that guitar sound doesn't really match up with the drum sound, or uh, that bass sound isn't really appropriate for this recording. They never say that. People these days have such a catalog of music in their mind that when they hear something that doesn't sound right, their brain will tell them, it will send signals that say something sounds weird or I don't like this. It can be that simple. Sometimes the brain just says, eh, I don't like this. For example, if you've got a drum sound that is really dry, but then you have an acoustic guitar with reverb on it, the brain will sometimes say, well, that doesn't sound real. I mean, why is it that that acoustic guitar has reverb and the drums don't? And why is it that the acoustic guitar is like louder than the drums? How, how is that possible? It doesn't sound right to the human ear sometimes. Now, sure, some guys can pull that off. But a lot of times, our brain says, well, that doesn't sound right. And so sometimes that can make the listener just not want to listen to the song. Sometimes it can make a band not listenable. And again, none of it is conscious. It's almost just an instantaneous subconscious thing. If you listen to any good recording that you think is amazing, you will notice how the sounds are generally very cohesive. They match with each other well. You don't have this, you know, super fat vintage Beatles drum sound with, you know, these metal guitars. It, it, you just don't really have that. And sure, you can try it and it might sound awesome and you might be a revolutionary, but you know, would I count on that? Not necessarily. Now, is it boring to do that? Is it boring to pick sounds that are cohesive? I don't think so. I think it makes a song have a direction. And you can't base a song's creativity on the way it sounds. A good song is a good song. And uh, I love the quote from George Massenberg um, that says, you know, I'm pretty sure, I hope I'm not butchering this quote, but good songwriting is genre agnostic. It doesn't matter what genre a song is. If it's a good song, it's a good song. And it really doesn't matter what's being played. If it's a piano and a vocal or an entire orchestra, I mean, if it's a good song, it's gonna come across. So don't think that I'm saying, oh yeah, well, no one's gonna like the song if you record metal drums and Beatles guitar or vice versa. Point is, if it's a good song, it'll hold up. But a good song, part of a good song is also, you know, having a, a vision having a vision for the entire scope of the production. And again, recording drums a lot of times is about the vision of the whole song because the drums are the backbone. I mean, the drums are what make people clap. The drums are what make people dance. The drums are what make people, you know, headbang. It's not generally the guitars, you know. Drums have such a prominent role in modern music that they're often the loudest thing in the mix other than the vocal. So keep that in mind. Keep in mind the sound that you're going for, okay? Listen to recordings. Notice the tuning of things. Are the, is the snare drum tuned high? Is it tuned low? Is it high pitch or low pitch? Is there a lot of ring or is it really dead? There's so many factors. Are the cymbals really bright or are the cymbals really fast? You know, do they, do, do they crash and then decay really quickly? Or do they sort of like, they sort of like unfold slower? There's so many considerations, okay? 
So, I again, I could go on about this for hours and hours, and one of these days I'll probably bring myself to write a recording book in addition to my mixing book. So, you have the drummer come in. Now that you've sort of got an idea of the sound that you want, okay, you have the drummer come in, and what I would suggest is buy new heads for the drum kit, for everything. The kick drum, the snare drum, the toms. Buy new heads, and if so, a lot of people will ask, what about bottom heads or resonant heads? Um, or on a kick drum, the front head. If you can afford it, buy those too. Preferably, you buy brand new heads for the entire kit. Um, that's one reason why it's much more effective to record drums for an entire album in a chunk rather than trying to do them separately. There's so many good arguments for that, but that's one of the biggest ones is that you can replace the drum heads early on and pretty much you know, not worry about them. Generally speaking, a lot of drummers that play live are using drum heads that can stand up to the wear and tear of the road. Uh, stuff by Evans or thicker Remo heads or, uh, you know, these thicker, more durable heads. And while they sound fine and all, they don't really sound good in the studio. And I very rarely use them in the studio. Actually, I don't think I really ever have. And every time, I, if a drummer has insisted, you know, that we use those, I usually say, okay, let's try it. We record it and they say, wow, that sounds bad. I mean, because it's true. In the studio, you generally want things to sound very defined, very crisp, very detailed. And for that, you're gonna need thin drum heads. Thin drum heads that um, can be coated or clear. Generally speaking, I like the coated heads in the studio. And probably the most common head for snare drum and toms is the Remo Ambassador. It's very cheap. I think it's like $12 or something like that. And uh, probably the most common for underneath is uh, a clear ambassador or a clear diplomat, I think it is. Um, there's a couple of different heads from, from Remo that are good for that. Um, I also really like the Evans EC Rezo head. Not the EC for top, I mean the EC resonant head. Uh, those are really nice on toms also. I really like those. On snare drum, I like the the Evans Hazy 300, I think is what it's called, on the bottom snare, but I also really like the uh, the Remo heads on bottom snare. On the kick drum, probably the most common head in the studio is the Remo Power Stroke 3. Um, some guys really like the Evans Emad, but it's not as popular in the studio. It sounds a little dull. It sounds fine live, and it sounds fine. Here's the catch with the Emad. It sounds good with the inside microphone, but it doesn't sound that good in the room. It's not very clear. It has sort of a thud to it. That can work really well if you're going for more of a thuddy kick drum with not a lot of attack. But if you're doing a rock song with with a you know a, a really defined snap to the kick drum, it's not really going to show up in the room mics unless you have a snappy drum head. And you want it to show up in the room mics, and you want it to show up in the overheads. You want the kit to sound balanced. And I mean, obviously, a snare drum. If you're if you're putting bright heads on the drums and the toms and the snare you probably want a bright head on the kick drum too, you know? So try not to mix drum heads too much because again, you want things to sound cohesive. So Power Stroke 3 from Remo is great. As far as the front head on the kick drum, you know, there's all kinds of options. Some guys just take that off, um, which works really well. Some guys will put on a, a fiber skin from Remo, which I really like. Some guys will use just a regular smooth ambassador head. Um, there's lots of different choices, but uh, the biggest part is, you know, making sure that the hole in the kick drum is there and in a good spot. So you can mic a kick drum without a hole in the front, 
but just be aware of the, the sound difference. It's, it's much different sounding than with a hole. Works great for jazz, works great for certain styles of rock, but um, doesn't always work. Here's the catch. Once you replace the drum heads, they need a little bit to acclimate. Okay, they're gonna stretch out. You know, I suggest tuning them up a little bit, give them some tension, and then press down on the very center with your finger. Press down, you'll hear them crackle a little bit to kind of stretch out, and then tune them up a little. Push down, crackle, 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 tune them up a little bit. Now, tuning drums, okay? There are lots of resources out there for tuning drums. The ones that I can recommend the most are by a guy named Bob Gatson, or Gatston, however you want to say it, on YouTube. Um, Bob, G-A-T-Z-E-N, I think. Gatston, Gadsen. He, I believe, actually works for Evans. Um, not positive about this, but I think he does. He's a great, great instructor when it comes to tuning drums. You know, he talks about tuning the drums, talks about different ways to tune them, you know, by tuning them low on the bottom and higher on the top or vice versa, or tuning the top and the bottom heads to the same pitch. And yes, it does take practice. It takes time and it's hard. I'm just going to admit that it's hard, okay? And a lot of drummers, unfortunately, don't know how to do it anymore. They don't know how to tune their drums. They're never taught how to tune their drums. And that's problematic, you know, because that puts it on the producer or the engineer or puts it on, you know, the drum tech. So you, you have to sort of wear all these hats. You have to learn how to do that. If you're going to be a good engineer, a good producer, you need to at least know when a drum doesn't sound good. Okay, you need to understand that every drum has a sweet spot, and or I should say a sweet range. Okay, every drum has a sweet range where it sounds good. Some drums, you know, you tune them too high and they sound like crap. Tune them too low and they sound like crap. So there's a sweet range. Then within that sweet range, you have to modify it a little bit to a either fit the tuning of the song if you prefer to do that. Um, totally up to you. And b the drums have to play well together. So you know, we'll, I'll get the drums in. We'll replace the heads, and then I'll move them into position, into the room, and start with just the kick and the snare. And I gotta make sure that those sound good together, because those are pretty much the most important parts of the kit. You know, when you hit the kick drum, the snare shouldn't go crazy. If it does, you either need to adjust the tuning, or tighten the snare wires, or get new snare wires, a strainer if you will, um, or adjust the kick tuning, okay? Those have got to sound great together. The kick needs to have good low end and it needs to have good attack, okay? And little tiny differences can make a big, you know, a big change. It needs to speak, okay? There's a range when you start tuning up the kick drum and tuning up the snare drum where it really starts to sound good, okay? And if you're looking for tuning patterns, you know, generally speaking, you will tune in sort of a star pattern as they call it. You can just Google, you know, tuning pat you know tuning patterns for drums or snare drum tuning pattern and you'll find videos or uh, uh, or pictures of how to tune the the heads sometimes what i will even do is write on the drum heads with a sharpie you know one two three four five six seven eight or whatever in, in terms of which lug to turn first so you know you tune one you would skip across the head to an opposite lug two then you'd move three, four, five, and you're never you're never really tuning stuff, you know, lug, move to the next lug, move to the next lug. You don't really do that because you want it to have even pressure across the drum head or across the surface of the drum, across the bearing edge. Sometimes you can just go ahead and do that. Go ahead and write on the drum. You know, it, it's not going to hurt. If you're the one that purchased the drum heads, no one really cares. Now, if the drummer purchased them, you know, you can ask them and they might not want you to, but 
Who knows? It might get them to start tuning their drums. Um, so anyway, look up those resources. Learn learn how to tune your drums, or at least get a little bit of knowledge about it. So we'll start with the kick and snare. We'll get those to sound good. Now, as far as the kick and snare go, that's going to be probably the most heard element in the drum kit. So they got to sound r good, but they also have to sound right. You know, does, it, does the snare need to be really ringy? Um, does the snare need to have a lot of um, dampening? Does it need to be really dull? Does it need to be really cracky and high pitch, or does it really need to be fat and lower pitch? Um, that's why it's great to have an arsenal of snare drums to choose from. I have five snare drums that I choose from. They're different materials, they're different depths, they're different sizes, all the above, and sometimes certain songs need a, a brighter, higher pitch snare drum. Um, like a lot of pop songs will use a, a brighter snare drum that's higher pitch. A lot of rock stuff will use sort of a mid, you know, a mid-tuned drum. And uh, certain uh, stuff, if you want to sound a little more vintagey, um, will use sort of a lower-tuned snare drum. And of course, it all depends. You know, you can break the rules. It does not really matter. Um, jazz stuff will generally have sort of a high mid-tuned snare drum or a high uh, a mid-low-tuned snare drum. It's usually one or the other. It's usually not super low and it's not super high. It's somewhere in the middle, but generally gravitating tones one or the other sides. Generally, if, I feel like if you're using brushes, a lot of drummers will like it a little higher just so it's a little more sensitive. Um, and if you're using sticks, drummers might like it a little bit lower so it's a little fatter. So it just depends. Kick drums, for example, Sometimes the drum head needs to be tuned a little higher than you think to really get the low end. You can sort of slowly tune it up as you're hitting it with your foot, um, kicking it if you want to say that, slowly tuning it up little by little, and there's a certain point, again, where it'll enter the sweet range, where you'll start to hear that low end from the kick really speak um, and, and show up, and it's like, oh, okay. Now, does it sound good with the snare? When I hit the kick drum, does the snare rattle like crazy? Okay, maybe I'll tune it up a little more. And if you tune it up a little more and it's still in that sweet range, then you get the best of both worlds because, oh, now it's not bothering the snare as much. So then from there, I'll bring in the toms, okay? And I usually tune from the, from the bottom up. So I'll tune the floor toms first and then I'll tune the rack toms later. I feel like floor toms have less tuning range. They have a smaller or narrower uh, sweet range. So they, you know, once you start to tune up floor toms, they kind of sound funny. They don't really sound like floor toms anymore. So um, be very cautious of that. There's a sweet range. And again, hit the floor tom um, and note and see if the snare drum goes crazy. Does it rattle a lot? When you hit the kick drum, does the floor tom go crazy? Um, there's lots of different things you can do. You can try tuning up the bottom head, try tuning down the top head. Um, for a lot of rock stuff, I like to tune the bottom heads of the drums higher than the top heads. Um, but sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes uh, the bottom head needs to be lower than the top head. It really depends all the time. It changes so much. Um, so you just got to try. And yes, it takes a while. I mean, it could easily take me an hour to two hours to really replace the heads, you know, tune up the drums and get them to sound where I think they should sound. And it takes time, an hour or two. So you bring in the toms. You know, I think one of the biggest culprits of issues with the drum kit is the rack tom. A lot of times you'll hit the rack tom and the snare drum will go crazy with buzz or ring or whatever. Um, so you got to tune up the rack tom a little bit. Then you have to deal with the fact that are you going to tune the toms in the key of the song? Now, this isn't necessary, really, but sometimes it can sound a lot better. 
my general rule is if the song has a lot of tom work, um, you know, if there's a, a big bridge with toms in it or, you know, there's a lot of fills, then I like to tune them in the key of the song. If the song is really straight, think of a song more like Billie Jean or something where there might be a tom fill or two in the whole song. Um, or it's more just like a country song where there's like a couple of fills here and there, but nothing crazy. I don't really worry so much. I just try to get the toms to sound good with each other and play nice with the snare. If I'm doing something like a lot of rock songs uh, where there's a lot of tom stuff, you know, like a tom intro or a tom break, or there's a big fill at the end, I will like to tune those at least somewhat in the key. So what I have for that is a little tuner that I just keep with me. And uh, you can, you know, set it, you can set it by the drum or hold it by the drum or whatever and just adjust the pitch. And it only takes a little bit, you know, it only takes a little bit. You just tighten up things little by little, you know, go around every single lug, uh, and just, you know, I, I'm, we're talking, you know, on, a, if we're talking about a clock face, we're talking about like an hour of difference. I mean, just, just a little bit of a turn, a little bit of a turn all the way around the head in alternating pattern and just go up little by little. You might need to go a quarter turn, you know, on, on, on a clock, like a three o'clock from noon to three o'clock. You might need to do that on the drum head, um, you know, just a little bit, but just keep in mind, the, the more even you can keep all the lugs, the better it will sound. Look up that stuff, okay? It'll, it'll improve your skills greatly and improve your drum sounds. Once you get the toms to play nice and everything sounds good, you know, and it's, let's say it's in the key of the song, then you gotta add in the cymbals, okay? So you add in the hi-hat and you add in the rye, you add in the crashes. Now the thing you're gonna listen for with the cymbals is consistency in tone. So you don't want your ride cymbal to be really loud, bright, and have a long decay while your hi-hats are, you know, really warm sounding and uh, your left crash is huge and has a huge decay, but it's really dark and your right crash is small and it's really quick. You know, that can be really dangerous. You know, I definitely advise not to mix too many cymbal weights. And uh, that's why a lot of times guys will have a set of cymbals, like, oh, I use all K custom cymbals, or, oh, I use all A custom cymbals. Now, generally speaking, my favorite cymbals are Istanbul's, and uh, Istanbul's and Minel. I think those are my two favorite. Um, there are some older Zildjian cymbals that I really love from, you know, like the K series. I really like those. Never been a huge fan of the A customs, but some people love them and swear by them. Try not to mix too many tones of cymbals because you don't want that stuff to come across as unbalanced. You know, you want your crash cymbals to have a similar loudness, a similar length to them. Um, gen generally speaking, if you have two crashes, you know, one is, is a little more like your general crash and the other might be more of a special crash for like big, a bigger crash, for example, like a 16 inch and then an 18 or 20 inch crash for like special end of a fill, you know, you have a big crash or you have a crash ride or something. So it's okay to have a symbol, like a China symbol. I mean, China symbols are a special effect symbol. And like crash ride symbols, you generally don't hit tons and tons. But, uh, you know, just keep that in mind. Keep in mind that the hi-hats and the ride and the crashes need to have a very similar just tone. Um, they can have different lengths, but don't go crazy with it. You know, don't have a super fast crash and then like a huge crash. I like to have warmer cymbals in general. I don't like my cymbals to be brighter than my snare drum. So if I'm using like a really bright snare drum, like a, gosh, like a birch snare drum, 
or uh, gosh, even a, a steel snare drum uh, that is tuned really high. Imagine maybe like a Carter Beaufort as in uh, Dave Matthews type drum sound. Then I might be able to get away with bright cymbals. But if I'm doing a rock kit with a sort of a medium tuned snare drum like what we're doing today, I like bigger cymbals that are warmer. Another thing to consider about cymbals is in the studio, generally, you don't have to hit them as hard as you think. The harder you hit the cymbals and the hi-hat, the more bleed you're going to get into the other mics. Now, you, sure, you don't want to just, like, tap them like a weenie. I mean, you don't want to be lame and, you know, not crash a crash cymbal. I mean, you need to crash it, but you don't have to slam it down. You don't have to, like, rear back like you're shooting a bow and arrow and, and, and just hit that thing with all your might. That's ridiculous. Now, generally speaking, um, heavy foot controlled hand cymbal light is going to yield the most balanced sound in the studio. It's going to be the easiest for you to mic with fewer mics. And if you're someone at home that doesn't have a lot of drum mics or a lot of preamps, you have to know that that is the most important thing for you getting a good sound is the way that the drums are played. The kick drum is not generally that loud of an instrument unless you're in front of it. If you're you know, the overhead mics don't really pick up a lot of kick drum. There's not a lot of kick drum bleed in other mics, necessarily. So the kick drum itself is sort of a focused instrument. It really only sounds loud when you're standing in front of it. And even then, it's not almost not as loud as the snare drum. So to get that kick drum to speak, you need to play it loud. You need to play it with a heavy foot. The snare drum needs to be controlled, and meaning, you know, not too quiet, not too hard. You don't want to hit it so hard that it sounds bad and that you start detuning it all the time. You know, you want to hit the snare drum really controlled and you want to hit it in the center or slightly off center. And the cymbals, you need to play essentially, you know, pretty light. As light as you can get away with without, you know, with getting the sound that you need. You know, sure, it might sound a little ridiculous if you play it too light. So, you know, don't play it that light. But you don't need to be wailing away on them, okay? So, now to talk about equipment. Okay, so on today's drum setup, I'm using, I believe, 15 microphones, and that's quite a few mics, okay? Um, this is not necessary. I have done drum sounds with four mics, with three mics, and been totally happy with it. A lot of guys will put up mics on the drums, and they don't think about where they're going. You know, it's like, oh, we need to mic the toms. Okay, so you put up a mic on the toms, and then you just say, oh, yeah, there's, there's a tom. Well... Mic choice and mic placement matters so much more when you're that close to something. When you're in the overheads, you know, you can, you can fudge a little bit about the positioning. Another thing to consider with placing mics on the drum kit is the patterns of rejection. I like to use hypercardioid mics on the toms because I feel like they control the bleed better. Now, the floor tom, for example, I like to face the rear of the floor tom mic towards the ride cymbal. So what that usually means is I will bring in the floor tom mic from sort of the kick side, not really like off to the right side of the drummer. I'll bring it in sort of just to the side of the kick and face it, um, you know, facing the back wall. And that's a little difficult. Sometimes you got to work with the drummer a little bit, and sometimes you got to angle it and move it a little bit to the left um, or the right, I mean, and it just depends. But you try to get minimal bleed on all the mics. You try to face the null of the mic, you know, if it's cardioid or hypercardioid, towards other things, towards the loudest, closest thing. Not necessarily, 
you know, the closest thing, it's the loudest closest thing. So if you're facing it towards a crash, you know, are you ever really going to be hitting that, let's say a rack tom, okay? Your main goal here is not necessarily that crash that's by the rack tom. Are you ever really playing the crash and the rack tom together? Probably not. But are you playing the hi-hat and the rack tom together? Probably not. Are you really playing anything in the rack tom together? I don't know. Um, you might be. You might be playing the ride cymbal in the, in the rack tom together. Okay, you might be doing that. You, maybe you are playing the crash, or maybe you're playing that crash, you know, and the floor and the rack tom really close together. So, you know, you hit the crash, and then, you know, you move on to the rack tom. It really depends. For me, I generally find that the ride cymbal is my closest enemy rather than the crash, because it very rarely will hit, you know, drummers will very rarely hit a crash and a rack tom together. Um, or, you know, and, and a ride cymbal generally has a longer sustain than a crash. Same with the floor tom. Uh, generally, the ride cymbal is my biggest worry there. Sometimes it could be a crash. It just depends on the drum setup. You have to keep in mind the snare is right next to the hi-hat. And generally speaking, the worst bleed that we get is on the snare mic from the hi-hat. So there's lots of things you can do to get rid of that. You can, you know, bring in the mic from the side, moving the hi-hat. Again, when you're in this close, when you're miking things this close, inches can make a difference. You know, move the hi-hat as far to one side as the drummer can stand. Don't make them uncomfortable, but, you know, move the, move the hi-hat a little to the left and maybe pull it up a little bit, you know, bring it higher. Um, that'll get it away from the snare. So think about this, okay? This is just a law of physics. For every doubled distance, there's a decrease in six decibels. So imagine that the hi-hat is three inches away from the snare drum mic. If you move that to six inches away by moving it a little to the left and then a little bit up, and it's now six inches away from that mic, the bleed will theoretically be six dB quieter. That's a pretty big increase, okay? That's a pretty significant increase. So it, ma it makes a big difference when you're in that close. Consequently, uh, for every halved distance, the sound is 6 dB louder. So theoretically, if you are two inches away from the snare drum with your snare drum mic and you move it in one inch, the sound is 6 dB louder, theoretically. It, it, it's a little fudgy sometimes, but generally speaking, that's correct. That is a law of physics. It matters when you're that close. So we're gonna go through these drum mics and I'll tell you where I place them all and then I will uh, let you hear them all individually and then hear them all together, okay? So I'm out here in the studio in the live room right now and we're standing around the drum kit and I'm gonna try to describe where all these mics are placed. Um, so let's start with the kick. So I've got a, uh, an RE20 from Electro Voice inside the kick drum and uh, it's a 26 inch kick drum with a pretty small hole. My guess is about four and a half inches, five inches. Um, it's not very big, but the kick drum itself is very large. It's got a nice big sound, it's real full. And uh, the RE20 is inside the kick drum. The base of the RE20 is just sticking out of the drum, just barely. And it's faced at the point where uh, the beater hits the front head or the batter head, I should say. Um, so that to me is uh, essential to getting a good attack on a kick drum is uh, having it face where the beater actually hits so it's angled up a little bit. Um, on the outside I have a Charter Oak E700 which is a really great condenser mic 
for outside kick drum. It's kind of like a U47 FET. can take a lot of level. The capsule is very large, so it's got a lot of low end. It's got a nice, beautiful low end, um, and I've got the 20 dB pad on it. Um, it's a great, great mic. So on the snare drum, the snare drum, like I said, I've got four microphones, and like I said, I very rarely do this, um, but I just have been doing it as an experiment. We've been experimenting with the snare sound, and uh, so... I've got four mics. I've got a Telefunken M80 on the top, which is, generally speaking, my favorite mic on the snare. And it's about, oh, an inch and a half, two inches off the side of the drum. Another big thing that I'm very, I'm very cautious of is I always make sure that the mic is actually, like the, the capsule of the mic is inside the drum, meaning it's not out, it's not like on the outskirts of the drum hoop. It's actually over the drum head. Uh, I think that helps to get more low end, um, but it is faced at about the center of the snare. I also have a Shure SM7 on the snare, and that's facing basically the exact same spot. I mean, they're just right next to each other. Um, on the side of the snare, I've got uh, a Fathead, Cascade Fathead, um, to get more of the shell sound, and again, this is all an experiment. Will I end up using all these? I don't know. Um, and on the bottom of the snare is a 57, an SM57. I had to work a little bit to make sure all these were in phase, and I had to move them a little bit. The mic on the side of the drum is sort of, I would say, parallel with the drum itself, it's, uh, and it's just facing the drum from the side, about four inches away from the drum. The rack tom and the floor tom are both AKG 414s in hypercardioid. They have the pad on um, to negative 18 dB, but they do not have the roll-off. So those, I love condensers on toms. I've had some luck with Sennheiser MD421s, but they just, they don't do it for me as much as condensers do on toms. I feel like condensers just get a fuller, rounder sound, and MD421s have a lot of attack, um, but they don't really have the full sound that I really like from toms. And I just feel like toms, on a song like, uh, you know, on a typical rock song, Generally, the toms can be pretty big because there's not tons of tom work. Now, if you've got a song with a lot of toms, then maybe you do need a little bit of a smaller sounding mic to sort of offset that. But if there's a tom fill every now and then, the drums can, you know, they can stand to be a little bigger, the sound that is, because they're not playing as often. So it's not really going to get in the way if it's during a fill. Those, again, are over, over the drum, facing sort of the point between the, the center of the drum and the edge of the hoop, and uh, they're about, I don't know, three or four inches off the actual surface of the head. That's the same for both the floor and the rack. And again, the, it takes experimentation to find these places, and I've been experimenting for years now, and I, this is something that, you know, I finally developed. I used to use 414s on overheads, but I decided I didn't like those as much, and I, like, I love them on toms. They're, they're really great. Now, especially if I was worried that my drummer couldn't hit in the center of the drum and was going to actually hit one of the mics and damage it, I would use uh, Sennheiser 421s um, or even SM57s on the toms. But again, I'm very familiar with Josh. I'm very familiar with his playing. He's recorded a ton of songs with me, so I know he's not going to hit the mics. Over the kick drum, I have this mic that... Uh, is a it's a Rode NT2A, and the mic is sort of, I don't know, maybe seven inches off the kick drum, 
um, in between the rack tom and the ride. And this is a trick that I learned from uh, reading a post by Eric Valentine. And uh, it's a really cool sounding mic, you know, and you end up distorting it and compressing it. And it sort of has a weird little kit sound, but it kind of picks up a lot of balance in the kit. Um, it's sort of angled at the snare drum, but it's over the kick drum, uh, over the center of the kick drum. And again, you'll hear it in a little bit and hear what it sounds like. Uh, in the room, I've got a Shure KSM-313 ribbon mic. Very, very nice sounding ribbon mic. I love this mic on room mic. It sounds great. Um, it really has a nice sound. It softens up the top so the cymbals aren't harsh. Uh, it just sounds great. And uh, let's see, I've got a couple of PZM mics around the room in various places. I've got one sort of taped to the back wall and one taped uh, to the floor. And those are... Uh, those kind of have a cool sound too. I might use those for distortion or um, for just sort of a weird ambience. Um, they have sort of a neat sound and I like to use them every now and then. Sometimes they don't work again, but sometimes they do. And sometimes I'll bring them up in one section or I'll bring them up for a fill. They have a really cool sound to them. And so for the overheads, now the overheads are a little tricky because I've developed the overhead approach that I use after a lot of experimentation. and. It's something that I hold near and dear to me, and uh, you're going to hear my secret now. So basically, how I view the drum set, when I'm panning a drum set, I usually will pan the kick and snare up the center, I will pan the hi-hat to the left, I'll pan the rack tom maybe 50 left, and the floor tom 50 right, and the hi-hat is you know maybe 50 left also. Um, maybe it's 100 left, I don't know. And it just depends. I don't usually pan any more than, you know, three to five pan spots, left, center, right, and then maybe the 50-50 here and there. Um, and that's, you know, you can learn more about that, LCR mixing. Um, you can learn more about that by viewing other things. Uh, I have a show on it earlier. But um, so the overheads, when I look at that drum set, that's the, that's the, the way that I view it. And so I never understood why people would put a spaced pair of overheads, you know, in the typical spot, like sort of over the left of the kit, like by the hi-hat, and then over by like the right crash. That just never really made sense to me. I don't understand because it, it presents sort of a weird image because it puts your snare drum off to the left. It puts your toms in sort of a funny place. You know, if you're sitting right behind the kit, it puts your hi-hat way to the left. It sort of creates this void in the center because the overheads don't really pick up the kick that well. And so there's like a void where there's like nothing really in the center. And the cymbals are just to the left and the right and the floor tom's like off to the right and the rack tom's off to the left. And I don't know, it just, it sounds a little funny to me. So what I started doing is miking up uh, what I would call the line of best fit. So imagine, if you will, a line that goes between the rack tom and the floor tom. Which basically, if you're sitting at the drums, now if you stand up and move to the left, just a little bit, like a couple of feet, I got a shaker on the ground there, the, kick, the snare drum and the kick drum and the ride cymbal are now almost centered. And the rack tom is to the left, the floor tom is to the right, and your hi-hat is to the left. And so, you know, I'm standing here offside to the back of the, the drum throne. Uh, you know, about three feet off to the left of the drum throne and looking at the kit. And that's, this is the panning that I use in the mix. So this is how I want to mic it. 
Um, this, to me, is the center of the drum set. I know that drummers don't sit that way, but that's how I end up panning it. Um, if you're one of those guys that pans the snare off to the left a little bit, then more power to you. But I don't. I always pan the snare center. So what that means is my left overhead is over sort of the, right, the left crash cymbal, and it's facing the snare. The right overhead is sort of over the floor tom, maybe a little even back from the floor tom, and it's facing the snare also. Then I have a center overhead that is back behind the drum kit, facing the snare drum. Uh, and the way that I do this is I take a cable and I tape one end to the snare drum, the center of the snare drum, and I would say it's a good five feet away from the snare, five or six feet, um, something like that, and I will move the cable around and position all these mics to where, because again, they're facing the center uh, of the snare, all of them, and I will move it around to where all of them are the same distance from the snare. So the cable is my measuring stick. I'll set my overhead over the left crash. Um, it's almost directly over the left crash, but it's tilted and facing the snare. Once I set that, because I always know where that guy goes. Once I set that, then I measure that distance with the cable. I tape it to the center of the snare, the, the other end. And then I will move my other mic across the line of best fit and put it there where the cable ends. And then I'll move it back behind and face it and, and place it for the, uh, the rear mic. Now, generally speaking, this uh, center overhead, the one that's sort of back and behind the drums, generally speaking, that's out of phase. So you have to flip the phase. Um, but when you do, it sounds really good. And a lot of times what I'll do is I will sum these three mics and sum them to a stereo pair of channels. And now that's just my overhead sound. And to me, that gets a really, really nice overhead sound. You get a really strong center. Because that other mic is sort of back behind, it's also facing the kick head. So you get a little more attack out of the kick, and you get a little more pop out of the snare. And combined, this setup really works for me. And so again, that's 15 mics. And uh, it's got a lot of awesome sounds that you can get out of it. And uh, I'm going to play a little bit, and then hopefully I'll have some clips of Josh playing, because he's a much better drummer. If you guys have any questions about this, just email me, and uh, feel free to, you know, request pic pictures or more info. So now, back in the control room, we're going to talk a little bit about where these mics are going and what processing is going on them. The Let's start with the kick. Let's do the same order that we had before. So the kick-in mic is going through an undertone audio MPEQ, which is uh, from... Eric Valentine's company, Undertone Audio, it's a great company, uh, great products. Uh, it's just a mic pre with EQ on it. There's lots of options. Go check it out. So that's running to the kick inside mic. There's a little EQ going on. There's uh, a little bit of, there's a high pass filter on just barely, I think at like 40 hertz or something. There's a little bit of low end boosted, a little bit of top end boosted, and then a little bit of low mids cut. So nothing crazy, just a couple dB on each, really just two or three dB. Um, just to kind of refine that kick sound. It is going into an Empirical Labs distressor, tapping off about 4 or 5 dB, medium attack, medium, slow, medium fast release, and um, 6 to 1 ratio. Sometimes I'll do 4 to 1, 
But again, it's just tapping off a couple of dB. At the loudest parts, maybe four or five dB. But again, um, I've tried to get as close to the sound that I want in the finished mix as I can, um, which, you know, I, I much prefer the analog stuff. So that's the whole kick chain. Now the kick out side mic. That's going through an AML 1073 with a little bit of low end boosted, but I'm not, I mean, hardly any, just one click really. And then a little bit of low mid taken out. That, I believe, is actually not running through any compressors, is it? No. So that is not going through any compressors, but sounds pretty good on its own. Snare top mic, okay? So the main M80 snare mic is going through a BAE 1073. A uh, little bit of low end boosted on that, a little bit of top end boosted, and a high pass filter just clicked in. And that's running through an Empirical Labs distressor also. Medium attack, medium fast attack, I guess. Fast release, and I've got the distortion modes on on that. And that's actually only catching about 1 or 2 dB of reduction, but the distortion mode is in, so it's clipping it a little bit with sort of the you know, uh, distortion modes, as they say, but just barely. It's real subtle stuff, but it helps remove some of the spikiness from the snare. Uh, the other snare mics, the SM7, uh, that's going through an API preamp and no EQ. And the side mic, the Fathead, that's also going through an API preamp, no EQ. And uh, I flipped the phase on the um, side mic. It needed that, needed to be flipped. And the bottom mic is going through a Universal Audio 710 preamp, the SM57 on the bottom of the snare. It's going through a Universal Audio 710 with the low cut engaged and the phase flipped on that one as well. And uh, I like to use that because I can kind of drive that preamp a little bit and it also has the low cut on it, which is really nice for the bottom snare mic. The rack tom is going through an API preamp uh, with, uh, let me see here, the pad is on and it is going to a Chameleon Labs 7602 for EQ, um, which is kind of a Neve knockoff type thing. And you know, it, it sounds okay. It's not nearly, it doesn't really sound like a Neve, but it has a nice EQ. I'm um, just using the line in on that for the EQ and um, boosting a little bit at 12K, just a, a crack just at 12K and boosting a little bit at six, uh, what was that, 7.2K and boosting a little bit at 110. So again, we're talking just tiny little bits here. I mean, if I could explain it, I mean, I don't even know exactly how much, how many dB it is, but we're talking just a few, just little tiny bits. The high pass filters clicked in at 50 hertz. Then um, the floor tom is running through an API preamp also into a Mercury EQH1 tube EQ. So again, that's a little bit of bottom end, a little bit of top end. And you might think, you know, oh, why are you boosting bottom and top? Well, you know, sometimes the direct signal from a mic is, uh, is close, but no cigar. I mean, you just need a little bit of help in the low end and the high end. Um, and some of these things don't need EQ, you know. Some of them don't at all. The overheads, for example, have a little bit cut out of the low mids, and that's it. Why not move on to that? So the overheads, we got three overheads. We got the left and the right, and we got the center. So the left, the left and right overheads are going through a pair of Vintec X73s, and I've cut out a little bit of low end or a low mid at 270 hertz, and that's it. That's all that's on there. Um, the middle overhead is running through a BAE 1073, and on that one I've actually boosted quite a bit of low end, 
um, to get some to get some snare. Um, I forgot to mention too while I was in the other room, the overheads, the three overhead mics are two KM184s for the stereo set, and then a Michael Jolly K47 for the center. Um, Michael Jolly is the owner of Octava Mod, not Octava, Octava Mod. So um, I think he's just calling himself Michael Jolly Engineering now. Yeah, there's a little bit of low end boosted, but then there's also the high pass filter engaged, so it creates sort of a peak in the low end. Um, and then a little bit of high end is actually taken out, but not much. Again, none of these EQ moves are severe. They're just a little bit off from the center just to sort of clean up the sound a little bit. The over the kick drum mic, uh, the Rode, that is going into an AML 1073 with a lot of low end boosted and some top end taken out and a high pass filter at 50. And then that one is running into a Slate Dragon uh, which is sort of like an 1176-style compressor, and it's pretty, it's smacking pretty hard, so that one's kind of a distorted, really slappy, spanky sound, and I really like that. The mono room mic, the ribbon mic, is going through uh, an AML 1073, and let's see, it doesn't even really look like there's any EQ going on there. There's, I guess, a little crack, a low end, and a high-pass filter, and that's it. Um, so you might, again, you might ask, why am I doing a high-pass filter and a crack a low-end at the same time? Well, it creates sort of a peak um, where the high-pass filter is, which sounds really nice. It kind of emphasizes the kick drum in one spot, uh, which is really nice. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't just like gradually boost low-end. It's almost like it filters out the, the sub-low stuff and then adds a little bit where, you know, where that filters off. So it's really nice. And then that is going into a vintage LA3 uh, back when it was Yuri, but now Universal Audio. And again, not tapping more than a couple of dB, I think maybe 5 dB in the, in the hottest spot, maybe that, usually more like 1, 2, 3 dB, just to, you know, squish it up a little bit, tighten it up, make it a little fatter. Um, and that's pretty much what's going on. Now, again, I like to do a lot of this stuff to get as close to the ideal sound as possible with as little work as possible later. I always try to look for pieces of gear that will save me time. And, you know, generally speaking, what I found was that I spent a lot of time mixing the drums. I could spend hours and hours mixing drums. Um, and I didn't like that because even though it's fun and everything, you get lost in it. And this way, um, it sounds really good coming in and I don't have to do a ton of work to it. Okay, so we're gonna take a listen to these files and just hear how they all sound and see what we can do. And again, if this were a live drum scenario, we could listen to them and say, okay, we need to go fix this. The tom mic sounds a little funky. Uh, the kick sounds a little weird. The overhead sound weird. We need to move these. So we can listen to them, have the drummer play for a little bit, and then listen to them and see, oh, do we need to switch the phase of anything? Do we need to... You know, you can do all that stuff without having them play for 10 minutes straight or whatever. Uh, and it's easier because you can loop the same thing over and over. And you can really see, okay, do I need to flip the phase? Does it sound better with that? And you can just make a list and do it all in one shot rather than, you know, it just seems to take less time to me to have the drummer play and then focus in on it there and then make notes. So let's listen to all the drums together, see how they sound.
not bad, you know? There are some things that we could fix. Let's go into each channel and check them out individually, okay, to see what we need to do, if there's anything we can do, um, if we like the sounds in general. Now again, keep in mind that it only matters how they all sound together. I'm going to say that a lot. I'm sorry. It's going to annoy you. But if they sound good together, that's a good start, okay? We can go in and make it better by listening for problems, listening for things that we can fix, little things at a time. So let's check out the overheads. This is the stereo set of overheads. Remember we used three. This is the left and the right. This is the mono overhead. Not bad. This is the inside kick mic. It's a little bit rattly. sounds like the pedal is bouncing. It doesn't really sound like a kick, you know, like there's something rattling in the kick. It sounds like the pedal is bouncing, so it needs to be adjusted a little bit. Make the note, move on. This is the kick outside mic. Nice. Now if you remember we had four snare mics and like I said I don't usually, actually I've never done this before. It's more just an experiment than anything. But I wanted to see how it sounded. Now in a situation like where we have three overheads, two kick mics and four snare mics, I don't really process those individually. I'll do automation on them sometimes but I don't process them really individually. I will sum the three overheads to a stereo and I'll sum the two kicks to a mono bus and the four snare mics to a mono bus and I'll process the bus. So all the snare mics are balanced, they're set, and they go to a bus and I'll EQ, gate, compress, whatever, that. So here's the snare top mic, the M80. Not bad. Uh, what you're about to hear now is the SM7. A little darker, picks up a little more ring than the other one does. This is the side mic. I'm not a huge fan of it. I might not end up using it. We'll just have to see. Here's the snare bottom. Typical snare bottom sound. And here's all four snare mics together.
Now remember that there's no EQ or compression on this other than what was done in the analog domain. There's no plugins on this. By listening to it now, you can say, okay, do we need to ditch the mics? Do we need to mic it differently? Do we need to use different mics? Do we need to change the snare? Is there enough low end? Is there enough top end? How does it sound? We can make these decisions. And uh, it's really nice to have that flexibility. It's a, it's a curse at the same time. I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, you know. It has the ability for you to mess with stuff later, but the bad part is it's the ability for you to mess with stuff later. And so it's sometimes better just to, you know, if I was in a studio that had a console, I could have just summed these mics to one channel and just said, nope, there we go, that's the sound. But point is, most of you guys at home don't have that, and I know that. So uh, this is something that you could do. If you have a lot of mics to your name, then sure, try it. Try multiple mics on things. Try a top and bottom on toms. Try three overheads. Try five overheads. I mean, try one overhead. doesn't really matter. Just think, try, I mean, let your brain run wild with experiments. And again, if you don't have a lot of mics at home, if you have, you know, three or four mics, that's totally valid. If I solo up the kick mic, the kick outside mic, and the three overheads, that's four mics total. It sounds pretty great. Check it out. Maybe you could use a little more snare, but you can get creative with the compression and uh, the EQ and maybe make it sound a little more balanced to your ear. Anyway, let's move on. So let's check out the toms. Now the toms, I've already edited out the space. Now I do it with automation. I don't do it with actually, you know, editing out on the waveform, but this is what the toms sound like. Floor tom is a little tubby and the rack tom is a little thin so we might adjust that a little bit in the recording stage and the bleed is not too bad I always make sure to check the bleed it's really hard to check bleed when you do a sound check because you know you say hey hit the tom and they hit the tom but you can't really hear the bleed so it's nice to be able to record someone and listen back to it for phase and bleed and all that stuff so check, let's check out the bleed on these tom mics see if it's workable The bleed on the rack tom isn't too bad, but the bleed on the floor tom is a little much. We might, uh, you know, be, we're moving that a little bit. Now here's the catch. Here's the decision that you got to make. Initially, my thought is I might move the mic back a little bit because it's a little tubby sounding. Uh, I might face it a little more towards the center of the drum rather than at the side to get some more attack out of it. But there's already a pretty de decent amount of bleed. Now it's not a lot of bleed. It's not like oh my gosh, that's a ton of bleed. You know, it's bleed. And not that bleed is bad, but we definitely want to try to make the toms as clear as possible. And so, you know, we got to make a decision. Will moving the mic to get more attack cause me to get more bleed, or will it stay about the same? I hope it stays about the same, because if that's the case, then sure, wouldn't be too bad. But if it adds a lot more bleed, then we might have to make some compromises. So one of those things you got to listen for. This is the over-the-kick mic or close to kit mic or however you want to call it. 
So this is the mic that was over the kick drum and it's compressed pretty heavily using a Slate Dragon. That is a cool sound, you know? It's pretty balanced for a single mic. Here's the mono room. It's a little crunchy, but not bad. I like it. We might dial back the compression a little bit, because if it gets any bigger than that, you know, then it might be a little too much. Or we might, you know, record the song in sections and use that for the verse and then dial it back for the chorus when he's hitting more cymbal or something or hitting harder. So you just got to check that stuff. Check the compression if you're doing compression live. So then we've got our PZM mics. Now these are weird little mics and they each have a different sound. That's the first one. That's the second. The first one has a lot more presence, a lot more crack on the snare. And the second one has a lot more kick oomph. You know, so might choose one, might choose both might choose neither. Have options, especially if you're working in a smaller space. You know, my recommendation to you is to put up the most expensive, best sounding pair of mics you got and use those as your overheads and try to get the sound. Move those around until you can get the sound. Doesn't really matter if they're not really overheads. I mean, you know, overhead technique is a technique in invented by somebody. You don't have to follow those rules. You can put a mic wherever you want. You can put a mic anywhere. So if you have two mics, you know, and you want to try to get a drum sound, move them around. Record a little bit. Try to see if you can get them to sound good. If you put a mic right over the kit and then put one on the kick drum, you should be able to get a fairly balanced sound. If you can't, then I wouldn't really blame the mic. I would look at more the playing and the room because for example if you put a single overhead over the kit let's say a couple feet above the drummer's head and then or maybe a foot or two even and then you put a mic inside the kick drum and you're not getting enough snare or the cymbals are too loud play the cymbals lower play the, play them quieter play the snare harder play the kick harder you know that's something that drummers really studio drummers really are good at is balancing themselves to the mics and making themselves just so even and controlled overall that it's just a joy to mix them. It's not hard to get a good sound with a session drummer, generally speaking. But a lot of guys that come in, you know, that have never recorded before, they recorded with this guy and that guy, or oh, we used samples before. You know, if you're doing live drum mics, it's really all about the player and you know, you can get a good sound using a, a pretty mediocre setup of, you know, three mics or, or, you know, I've heard amazing drum sounds done on very, very inexpensive gear. But the point is, if the drummer's good and if you use your ears, you can get a good sound. Let's listen to all those again.
like I said, I will generally uh, edit out the space and the toms with automation, and I'll go through the mics, check them out, I'll listen to them again if I need anything. Uh, you know, I made a note that I needed to check out that kick. It's a little rattly, and you know, I can check out the mics and make notes and say, oh, I need to flip the phase on that, I just realized. And you can do lots of things. It's not uh, uh, just set it and forget it. Drums are never like that. Once you get to that point where you feel like you're pretty good at doing that, another thing you've got to take into consideration if you're producing is the sounds in general. Are the toms too open? Do they need to be muted? Is the snare right? Should it be a deep snare? Should it be a, a, a thinner sounding snare? Should it be louder? Should it be you know, crackier. I mean, is the kick drum big enough? Does it need to be more muted? Is there too much ring? There's so many considerations. Are the cymbals too bright? Are the cymbals too long? Are they too washy? Are they too pingy? You know, and that's stuff that comes with time. Take the time, put in the hours, listen to it, give it a shot. Don't settle for samples. You know, samples are great, but they don't have much feel to them. And after a while, you just, you can just tell. You know, if people send me tracks, I can tell when there's a sample. I've heard the samples before, you know, people use the same samples, it seems like. It's one thing to use samples to enhance a drum sound, and another completely different thing to use samples as your drum sound. So just keep that in mind. So I hope you guys took away something from the podcast today. If I had to just summarize, I would say if you're recording drums for a project, then consider a couple things in this order. First, the drummer. Is the drummer good? Can he hit consistently? Can he hit the snare the same way, the exact same way, the same volume, time and time again? That's a big consideration. Um, if you could see these waveforms of Josh's drumming, you would see how silly consistent he is. I mean, you can literally tell when he's doing a song, you can literally look at the waveform and know when the song changes to a different section because all the hits are perfectly even and then they get a little bit louder for like the chorus, and they're perfectly even then. And they get a little quieter, they're perfectly even then for the next verse. I mean, it literally looks like I took a, a limiter and just chopped off the top of, of every waveform. And it's because he knows how to hit. He's been drumming for 20 years, and he knows how to hit the drums. Also, that's, I mean, that's the number one thing. Number two, can the drummer play in time, okay? That's important also. It's the same type thing. It's just being a good musician. Three, how do the drums sound? I mean, do they sound good sitting in front of them? Is it a cheap drum set? Do you need new heads on it? Do you need to tune? You need to look up stuff about tuning. I'm sure you do, but you can always learn more about tuning, you know? Me work with the drums. Get them to sound good. Look up videos of, you know, there's a great video of a John Bonham's old drum tech talking about his drums. And there's plenty of videos on YouTube about how to tune drums in lots of different ways. Watch something that's done by a professional. Don't watch... You know, your average Joe's video, this is how to tune a snare drum. You know, watch something that's done by a professional. They know what they're talking about. Um, next, check out the room. You know, is it a, is it a small bedroom? You know, then that, that can create some issues. You're going to have to treat it. You have to. Try, in general, to record drums in a larger room. Because even if it's a larger room, you can still put mics up close, and you're not really going to get tons of reverb. And even then, you're probably still going to put reverb on the drums in the mix anyway. So don't dismiss that. Don't think, oh, you know, I want to record drums in my living room, which is, let's say, you know, 18 by 20, okay? A little bit decent-sized decent room, you know. Uh, the ceilings, let's say the ceilings are 9.5 feet in the living room. Okay, 
fine. That's got a pretty decent room volume. It's not huge, but it might be pretty roomy. We'll try recording the drums in there anyway and then listen to them with the rest of the song. You know, that's one of the problems with the digital world and, and the way that we make records so often by doing things individually is you can't really hear context, you know, because if you had recorded all the other instruments at that point, you would be able to hear, oh, the drums sound great like that. But because generally we'll record a scratch track and then the drums and then we'll add, you know, the guitars and the bass and all that, then you can't really hear it in context. And that's a problem because you need to understand the context. You know, when I make a record with a band, one of the things that I like to do is do a lot of pre-production. So we'll do demos and, you know, the band will basically give me every demo they've made. If they haven't made a demo, you know, then they usually make one. So that's sort of scratching out the entire song, not just like a scratch vocal and a scratch acoustic guitar. It's like essentially a scratch of every instrument. Okay, it's like the vocals, the bass. They'll even do scratch drums, and then we'll go back and just replace it all. Now, it sounds like it takes a long time, but it helps a lot because you can really nail down parts. You can say, you know what, that guitar part doesn't work. I can hear it in context before we actually hit record You know, on the, in the studio, and it doesn't work. You know, that's why I'm such an advocate of people having some sort of way to record themselves. Some people might think, you know, that I'm against people having home recording things because I work at a studio because I have my own studio as a job, but I'm not. I want people to record stuff on their own, but I don't want people to fool themselves into thinking that their studio is something that it isn't. You know, um, if if you have a way to record yourself, that's great. And a lot of people are doing it now where they'll make demos. And it's very, very helpful to me. And I can guarantee you, the bands that I get that come in and do pre-production and the bands that have done full demos of basically every song they want to record, they always, always sound better in the studio because they've heard it all before. They've heard how the parts fit together. They understand the song better. Anyway... After that, after you've checked out your room, after you really understand the context, you know, go for it, okay? Try. Experiment. Don't follow the books. Don't, don't think that you have to put up a stereo pair of overheads. You can use a mono overhead. You can use two different mics over the drum set. They don't have to be a matched pair. There's no rules, you know? We get in, the, our, in our mind, oh, well, I got to put up overheads. No, you don't. You can just use room mics, and that's it, you know? And I love what Brian Dex said on the interview with him. You know, if you mic up a kit in a conventional way, which I did today, you're going to get a conventional sound. And sometimes that's totally valid, but other times it's not. Sometimes you want something a lot more interesting. You know, if you mic up a kit with the, you know, snare top, snare bottom, tom, tom, kick, inside, kick it outside, you're going to get a certain sound. But if you're looking for something more, like, out there, more sort of experimental, or if you're looking for something that sounds like something you've never heard before, you're going to have to do things you've never done before. I mean, that's why so many people love the Beatles, right? Because they tried everything and anything to get a different sound, and they did so many things that no one had ever done before. So keep recording. If you guys have any questions about this, email me at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions about recording mixing, anything. Very soon I'll have the show up from Garrett Haynes from Tree Lady Mastering. 
I uh, got to sit down with him for a couple hours and talk to him about mastering and lots of great questions he answered for me. And I'm really excited about that. I'm glad you guys are going to hear that. But uh, I've been working on this show for a little while, so I thought that I would put this one out first. Check out the blog, recordinglounge.blogspot.com. I post stuff from time to time there. Check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash recordinglounge. Be, be a fan, be a friend, say hey, join the community, ask questions. You can totally ask questions there too. Uh, check out my book if you're interested in my book. It is threedimensionalmixing.com. You can buy it there in PDF form. I am working on physical copies right now. It's a long process and it's kind of a headache, but it's, uh, it, it's coming. Stay tuned for more shows. I'll talk to you guys soon.